Good morning, brothers and sisters. Yesterday, Saturday, we, the church, celebrated the feast day of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And I thought it's a good opportunity to give you a little of the history of this particular devotion to the Blessed Mother. Many of you may have been or may be familiar with Mount Carmel or the Mountain of Carmel from the Old Testament. It's one of the most significant stories in Jewish history. So it was on this mountain where Elijah, the great prophet, defended the faith, the true faith, the Jewish faith, and brought the people back to worship God properly. The people had gone astray following pagan prophets and pagan gods, and so Elijah kind of has this spiritual battle. God proves his, himself. He kills all of the bad prophets, and the people repent and, and place their faith in God. So it's a very famous mountain in Old Testament history. And so in the 12th century, a group of monks decided to set up their own little monastery on this mountain. They thought, well, this is a very important mountain in our history as believers. And so they went up to the top of the mountain, they set up a little monastery, and they started spending their time. Obviously, they, they had basic needs they took care of, but all of their free time was spent in prayer and meditation. They consecrated themselves to Mary, the mother of God. And from this came what we know as the Carmelite order. So Carmelites, the religious community of contemplatives, came from Mount Carmel, on which this, these monks in the 12th century started this religious order. So I'm sure many of you have met Carmelites, but their sole focus, the Carmelite order, is meditation. Now, again, yes, they have to cook and clean for themselves and, and all of the basic necessities of life, but basically, Carmelite men and Carmelite women go into monasteries and convents, and they don't leave. They usually live within the walled enclosures. Only in very rare exceptions will they actually leave the grounds. You know, if they have to go to the hospital or the doctor or something like that, or a grocery store, that's necessity. But outside of that, they simply live within their cloister. And all of their spare time, or most of their spare time, is spent in meditation. Now, it's not new that, that throughout the centuries, people have sometimes been tempted to think that that's kind of a waste of a life. I mean, couldn't they be doing more out in the world, at least taking care of the poor? I mean, consider Mother Teresa, for example. You know, she may have spent good time in prayer and meditation, but she was out there doing stuff, making a difference, proving her love for Christ by loving the poor and the needy. So we naturally think that that's the superior good. And love is the highest of goods. We know this, right? God is love. Nothing is greater than God, so nothing is greater than love. But our Lord gives us a very different message in the gospel today. Because here you have, you know the story, Martha and Mary. Martha invites Jesus to her home. She hears about this really famous Jewish guy, this rabbi, who's going around preaching amazing things and doing miracles. And she meets him in her town, and she's like, please come stay at my house. She's a great hostess. So... You know how Jesus, he brings, you know, a hundred people in, tail, in tra train, in his train, whenever he's walking along. And so I'm sure the, the apostles were there, and however many people from the village were there, gathered in her home or outside the door, listening to him, to him speak. And she's trying to take care of her guest and the rest of the guests. And the gospel says she's, she's burdened with much serving. 
and her lazy, good-for-nothing younger sister is just sitting down while she's doing all the work. Now, older siblings understand this, right? Older siblings know they get the the biggest responsibilities. They usually have to do the most work in the home because they're the oldest. And so they're often very tempted. This is a normal thing. We see it all the time in studies. They're tempted to look at their younger brothers and sisters as just lazy and weak because they don't have to do as much. And so Martha and Mary were not surprised by this interaction. So what does she do? She goes to Jesus. And you have to think about it in hindsight. Jesus is God, and here is this woman, as good and virtuous as she is, telling Jesus what to do, right? I mean, how often have we done that in our own prayers? Lord, I need you to do this, you know, Lord, you should do this for me. So here is is Martha, with the best of intentions, telling Jesus, look, tell my sister to get up and help me. And instead of our Lord reprimanding Mary, what does he do? Martha, Martha just shakes his head in front of everybody, all of her guests. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. But Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. It's precisely because of this passage in Scripture that the church teaches that the highest vocation, the highest action that you can perform in life outside of the sacraments themselves is meditation. Because here is Mary sitting there listening to Jesus speak. Now our Lord doesn't say that Martha, Martha, serving and loving your neighbor as you're doing is not good, is unworthy. He doesn't say that. He simply says in comparison, your acts of love and service, as good as they are, as high and exalted as they are, are not as exalted as this to sit at the feet of the master, and to listen to his word. So it's not surprising that in the history of the church, religious orders have sprung up that focus primarily not on serving the poor and the needy, but on prayer and meditation. It's all because of what Jesus said to Martha and to Mary. Now, why is it true, however? It has to be true, Jesus said it, but why is it true that meditation is superior to acts of service? There's a few reasons, but the first reason is is quite simple. When you are doing something loving, when you're performing some loving act, whatever it is, you can only perform that action of love because you first know that it's a loving thing to do. Knowledge, understanding, intellectual awareness precedes human action. It precedes it, right? We're not animals. We're not animals. We're not supposed to merely act on instinct alone. This is one of the things that gets us in so much trouble all the time. We have these amazing intellects and wills, the spiritual capacity animals don't have. So we can actually know the truth and then perform actions in conformity with that truth that we know. And that's the way God designed us. Because honestly, that's the way God is. Knowledge precedes love. Love may be superior in the grand scheme of things, but knowledge is more primary. Until you know, you cannot act properly. So knowledge always comes first. And you cannot know, especially higher truths, unless you've been taught 
If nobody's taught you what to believe, then how are you going to know to believe it? I mean, how many of us would have ever believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, some Jewish guy who was murdered 2,000 years ago, if we weren't taught and ultimately convinced of it first by his grace? Since knowledge, since knowledge is primary, comes first, even before acts of love, it is the first thing that each of us must do in order to learn to love properly. Now, the greatest thing we can know is God. There's nothing greater than God's self-revelation. And so contemplation, meditation on God, on his words, on his actions, reflection upon these things is the first, the primary goal that each of us has. Ultimately, these religious communities of men and women, they want to love God better. That's why they spend so much time thinking about him, contemplating who he is, what he wants from them. And it's a, a lifetime pursuit. You never get done with it because God is infinite, so there's always more to learn. And our Lord is telling each of us when he says to Martha and to Mary that that is the best part. If you, if you choose in your life, you can choose to, to serve the way Martha did or to meditate the way Mary did. But in our Lord's view, Mary chose the better part. Now, I'm assuming Mary's goal was to learn to love. Yes. But God wants to teach us. He wants to reveal himself to us so that we can love him. He wants to be loved. He doesn't need to be loved, but he wants to be loved. And it is good for us when we love God. Our lives improve dramatically. But it actually always begins with the intellect coming to know him better. Even just think of the Mass itself that we're celebrating right now. By design, by Christ's design, the liturgy of the Word precedes the liturgy of the Eucharist. Even though the goal, so to speak, is the sacrifice, the offering of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and if we're worthy, the worthy reception of him in Holy Communion, that's the focus at the end of Mass. But that's not the first thing that we do. The first thing that we do is we read the Word of God. And then you hear a homily preached on the Word of God. Because your mind must be fed before your body can be fed. That's why this is the better part, as Jesus said. But there's even a deeper reason why meditation is the better part. Because in heaven, when we all die, God willing, we go to heaven... Basically, this is what you'll do for eternity, right? Are there any poor in heaven? Are there any sick or lame who need you to care for them? Any imprisoned? Is there any act of love that you can perform in heaven for any other human or angel of which they are in need? No, nothing. Why? Because God fills them completely. Nobody else, no other creatures will ever need you again when you die and go to heaven. What you will do, what we will do, I've got to include myself in this, God willing, what we will do for the rest of eternity is gaze upon the loveliness of God and rejoice. It's an eternal meditation in a sense. So these men and women who devote their earthly life to this are actually getting ready for an eternity of doing this in heaven. 
And yes, they have opportunities to love their neighbor. One of the basic teachings of any religious community, it's been handed down by the saints through the centuries, is that if you have a group of nuns or a group of brothers or monks living together, and all of you are getting along, this is the advice that, that the saints have given, then you need to bring somebody into the community that nobody likes, because that's the only way you'll grow in holiness. It's the only way you'll have an opportunity to be patient and forgiving with somebody. So even in a religious community, you think, oh, they've got it easy, right? They're always praying. It's got to be just beautiful all the time. You have no idea. No idea. I, I run across this with young people who are zealous, and they, 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 they're discerning calling to religious life. You know, I always encourage that. It certainly could be the case. But they have this idealized version that religious life is heaven on earth. I'm sorry, no. Like, no. It just, I, I was in religious life for three years, and even in that short time, I learned. And you talk to anybody who's experienced any real time in a religious community, and they'll tell you, it's like any other family. I mean, yes, there are more strict rules, and you have you know, more prayer, and there are special graces for that. But there's irritation and frustration. One of my favorite stories, you'll see why it's my favorite in just a minute. So there, there's an order of, of cloistered monks called the, um, I do know the name of this, give me a second. What's the ones who take the vow of silence? Uh, Carthusians, thank you. So there's an order of Carthusians. Now they take a vow of silence, and for centuries, this particular monastery, once they entered and, and went through the formation process, they could only speak when given specific permission to do so. So they kind of created their own sign language when they needed to communicate, you know, past the salt or something like that, little things. Well, there were these, to, to live a life of poverty and simplicity, everyone would not have their own prayer book during prayer times. Two brothers would share a prayer book. So it was an act of simplicity. So you didn't have your own possessions. Well, they would always, once you joined and became a full member, they would basically pair you up with another brother in the chapel. You would sit beside them, and one of you was assigned by the abbot to turn the pages. The other would just sit there and, and pray along. So you could speak out loud when you were praying, but other than that, they were silent. Well, these brothers had been praying together in this way for years. I mean, years and years. And so... Finally, one day, in the middle of prayer, one of the brothers, the brother who didn't turn the pages, stood up and just said out loud, you did that on purpose, and punched the other brother in the face. <laughs> I, I find this hysterical, because the abbot, of course, had no idea what was going on, and the brother who got punched was so confused, he had no idea why he just got hit. And so the abbot calmed everybody down, and like, this had never happened before. So he took the, the angry brother aside and was talking with him, and he said, what happened? And he said, he said, Father Abbott, you don't understand. For years, for years now, that brother has been turning the page right before I finished the, the last sentence. On purpose. I know he's doing it on purpose. He's got to know. And this brother just convinced himself that the other brother was doing this on purpose just to irritate him. And he suffered it for years, which is pretty good, you have to admit. But he just kind of lost it at one point. <laughs> so, in the end, that abbot realized he would allow a few more times of talking to deal with these kind of interpersonal issues. So, religious life is not easy. Even in such a seemingly beautiful setting, there's always going to be human weakness and temptations and struggles. Another great story for this is with Therese of Lisieux, we call her the little flower. So in her 
diary, she talks about this one particular nun in her community that she really had a hard time with. She just, she did not like her. She, she didn't even ex exactly explain why. She just didn't like her for some reason. But she would go out of her way to show her love, to be patient with her. But this was a great challenge for Therese of Lisieux, who's a saint, right? Well, after Therese's death, a lot of these nuns were interviewed to, to find out about the, her holiness of life. And this particular nun, whom Therese didn't personally like, was convinced that she and Therese were best friends. Absolutely convinced. Because Therese treated her with such kindness, this other nun didn't know. So there's, there's always opportunities to grow in virtue and acts of love, regardless of what vocation you choose. But according to our Lord, the highest choice you can make is that of a life of meditation. Now, you and I can try to spend some time in meditation, and we should, if not each day, at least each week. We need this. We need this for spiritual growth. You cannot truly grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord without meditation. You can't. It's just not possible. Now, I don't expect you to do an hour of meditation a day. I mean, maybe you can. Wonderful. That's great. If you can't, don't worry about it. For some of you with little children, you can't meditate 10 minutes a day. So the Lord understands. You, everybody with little kids gets a free pass, basically. For as long as you have them to raise them, you don't have to meditate. Say your prayers, do your rosary, but you don't have to do any specific form of meditation. Even at Mass, if you're totally distracted, it's okay. You're fulfilling your obligation to God in your vocation. But for the rest of us who have a little more freedom, God would expect a little more time. Remember, this is the better part. And if we really want to grow in our closeness to the Lord, this is the first step. It's the only way to love him better is beginning stages of meditation. So I want to give you just a couple of points on how you can work towards improving meditation in your own life. So ideally, when you meditate, you want to be seated. You don't want to be kneeling. You don't want to be laying down. If you're laying down, you could fall asleep. If you're kneeling, your knees or legs or back could get sore, and then you're not going to be meditating. You're going to be focusing on your pain. So seated in a somewhat comfortable position. You want to be in as silent and quiet a place as possible. It's ideal to do it in front of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Obviously, that's the best place to meditate because you're literally sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary. So if you can't do that here in the church, just find a quiet space at home. Or if you like going outside, try to find a quiet space outside. You can't always turn off all the noise. I'll give you some pointers on how to ignore those things. But again, you need to try to put yourself in a proper setting for meditation. Okay. You need to begin by asking for the grace to meditate and giving the Lord all of the burdens that are on your heart. Because if you're anxious and worried about many things, are you going to meditate? No. You're going to be like Martha. You're just going to sit there worrying the whole time. So you have to unburden your anxieties. You have to give those away to the Lord. You have to learn to let go of them. <clears throat> that is one of the first essential stages in meditation. It can take months and years for somebody to master this. So you just got to keep at it and keep trying. You get better over time. Once you can kind of release the anxieties, the burdens of your heart, then you need to turn your mind towards a specific topic, a specific passage, something on which you can put your focus. So my mother, I remember my mother saying this to me when I was much younger. She said, 
like if you're praying and meditating, if you open your mind to everything, you can fall for anything. So if you open your mind to everything, you can fall for anything. So meditation is not new, it's ancient. There are cultures and religions that have meditation. The Orientals do it, a lot of kind of new age people get into it now. But these are pagan forms of meditation. We don't do that. We don't just sit there and open our minds to the universe. Who knows what's out there? You could be letting anything in. You can talk to exorcists who deal with these kind of things of people who have engaged in meditation and they haven't directed it and they were caught by some type of demon. Now, I'm not saying everybody who meditates outside the church is going to get snagged by a demon. God is obviously trying to work in every soul's life. But when you meditate, you need to have a focus for your mind. You don't want it to just wander freely, be open to everything. The way you focus it is by Lexio Divina. So it's you take a spiritual writing and you read it as a focus. The ideal book is obviously the Bible. The Bible is the best thing because it's the Word of God. So meditating on the Word of God is the best thing you can do. Commentaries on the Bible are great forms of meditation because they give you specific insights. The writings of the saints, these are wonderful for meditation. Again, top of the tiers is the scriptures themselves, commentaries on the scriptures and such, then the writings of the saints, church documents, official church teachings. I know they can seem a little intellectual and dry at times, but trust me, you spend more time with them and the Lord will use them as an opportunity to enlighten your mind. And that's ultimately the goal of meditation. We focus on this Lexio Divina, the spiritual reading, so that God may enlighten us. So contemplation, which is the highest form of meditation, can only truly be given by God. Some of you may have experienced this, and it's, it's awesome. It's completely amazing when it happens. You're sitting there, and you're trying to meditate, and all of a sudden, it's as if this light, there's no other way to describe it, is poured into your mind. It's like you're in a dark room and suddenly somebody flips on the light and you see everything clearly. It's like the, that which was hidden a moment ago has now become perfectly revealed to you. It's a beautiful opportunity. That is a grace of God, but you've opened yourself up to that grace because of your meditation. When I first learned to formally meditate, it was months before I had any type of you know, revelation, any type of insight. I just had to learn the basic tactics, the skills of meditating and work on mastering those. So having something specific to focus your attention on. Another thing, and this is a big problem that all of us have, are distractions. You have this in all of your prayers, right? You get distracted, I get distracted. I mean, even at Mass, I have to constantly bring my focus back to where it should be, you know, on the Lord, on the words that I'm, I'm saying. An early technique that was offered to me by a spiritual director has helped me a lot. Think of your mind, your intellect, like a great ocean. And you can head in any direction that you want. You can just pick a, a point on the map and, and head there. Whatever you want to focus upon, that's where your mind then goes. But theoretically, you could turn any which way. At times, you're on this sailboat on the ocean of your, your thoughts, and you're, you're trying, in this case, let's say, to focus on the first reading. So from the book of Genesis, 
It begins, Abraham, by the Terabeth of Mamre, the Lord appeared to him. So you're, so you're meditating on this particular story. And so you're trying to think about it. That's meditation. You're using your mind just to think about it. Put yourself in the, in the story. Think about why did he do this? Why didn't he do that? Just ask questions. And all of a sudden, a distraction comes along. Like, oh yeah, I'm starting to get hungry. What's for lunch? And, and it's like another sailboat on the ocean. And it, and it comes into view. And the moment you see it, because you've been focused for at least a few minutes, hopefully, on, on this one point, the moment it comes into your intellectual view, you get distracted by it. You're like, ooh, look, a boat. The moment you see it, your whole body, your mind, turned towards this idea. And it might not be food, it could be some problem you're having, some struggle, some hope. It could be any number of things that distracts you. So as this idea is coming into your mind, you've totally turned your gaze away from your focus and onto the new thought. So how do you master this? You have to know you can't stop distractions from coming. Not even the greatest saints could do this. You will always have distractions, period. Until you get to heaven, it's just a thing. What you need to learn to do is control whether you focus on distractions or not. So this is what you practice. The moment I realize that I'm not meditating anymore, I'm thinking about X, Y, or Z, I make a quick apology to the Lord. I say, Lord, I'm sorry. And then I simply refocus on that passage that I was reading. I go back and I read it again. And maybe I can still intellectually sense the distraction that's trying to pull my attention. But I have to say, nope, nope, no, nope, I'm just focusing on this. I have to resist it. Now, in the early, early stages of learning to master this, it's going to be really difficult. You just have to keep trying. You say a little apology to the Lord, and then you try to focus again. After some weeks and months of work, you'll find it gets much easier. A simple tactic I would encourage you to use at Mass, something my guardian angel taught me a long, long time ago, is let's say you're here, you're sitting in the pew, and there's a child who suddenly screams in the back, or a loud bang. Your instinct is to turn around and look, correct? That's your instinct. Don't do it. Just don't look. You have to learn to train your body before you can train your mind. If you can't control what your body looks at, then how are you going to control your thoughts? It's far more challenging. I, I've told this story before, and, and it's, it's a really good one. In seminary, I had a Saturday off, and so I went to a Marian shrine in Upper Pennsylvania. I think it was Our Lady of Chestahova. And it was a daily mass about noon. So there were maybe 10 people in the church, but this was like a basilica. It was massive. It probably sat three to 4,000 people, so it's huge. I'm in the way back, back pew, alone. There's nobody within 40 pews of me. Most of the people are up in the front, front pews, and there's one woman about in the middle of the church. During the consecration, a phone rings. And again, it's a big empty church, big stone walls. So it's like reverberating. Everybody can hear it. So I have my eyes closed. I'm trying to focus and pray on, on the consecration. And I think, okay, just, just ignore it. They'll, they didn't realize they had their phone on. They'll turn it off. I thought that. All of a sudden, I heard, yes, hello? No, I'm at mass right now. I can't talk. Oh, really? Like, I lost it. I completely lost it. I was 
furious. It would, people make mistakes, leave their phone on. It happens. Answering your phone <laughs> during Mass and during the consecration, it was, not only was I thinking that God was offended, that the priest was offended, that the rest of the people were offended, that I was offended, that this was serious. I was furious, so upset. And I was just fuming. Oh, I wanted to say something. I wasn't going to, but I, oh, I wanted to say something. So within 30 seconds of this happening, and, and this person talked for a minute or so, like it wasn't a short conversation, I actually heard a voice in my head say, it worked, didn't it? And I said, what worked? The distraction. The devil got you angry. He got you to focus on that instead of on the consecration. And I was like, oh man, you're right. And so I had to just let go and it wasn't easy. That was a serious distraction. That was not a little thing. That wasn't something you can just ignore. But it distracted me even emotionally. And I had to let it all go. I had to put it all behind me, just kind of forgive her. God will judge her, it's not my problem. Sorry, I tried not to tell you it was a woman. So. Not picking on you ladies, it could have been anybody. But I had to learn to let go, both of what was on my heart and what was in my mind. And by his grace, I was able to refocus and just let it go, moved on. But it was a great opportunity for me to learn how to fight against distractions, especially at mass. But you have to have basic techniques to do this. So you learn to master your body. Don't allow your eyes to look towards distractions. That's the first thing. If you can't control that, you won't be able to control anything else. Once you can control your posture, your position, your body, then you close your eyes and you work on controlling your thoughts. You have to let the distraction sail by. It's going to be there in your mind. You're just not focusing on it. It's okay to ignore it. You have to give yourself permission to ignore it. Even when you're worried about something, give yourself permission not to worry about it for the next 10 minutes while you meditate. It's okay, it's gonna be there when you get out. So, body posture, having something to focus your mind upon when you're meditating, and working on distractions, those are the three best points that you can do. Now, Ideally, if you could, it would be wonderful to meditate for at least five minutes a day. Just, you know, if you can fit that into your prayer time. If you can't, don't worry about it. Again, many of you with young children and busy jobs, that's difficult. At the very least, however, you can meditate once a week. I think everybody can do this. We have a holy hour on Thursday evenings. You can use that time to come and meditate. You can come into the church any time throughout the day, right, when it's open. But... If, if let's just say during the week you're really, really busy, that's okay too. On Sunday, in which you're supposed to, God willing, be able to relax and spend more time in prayer, try to find a time to meditate. And if you can't do it here at the church and you can't avoid your family in order to do it properly, do it with your family. Mom and or dad can actually lead the children in a form of meditation. Teach your children to meditate at a young age. Now, it's not going to be long meditation, and it's gonna be filled with distractions at first, but that's okay. The more you do it, the better everyone gets. So trying these techniques, practicing them yourself, teaching your children to do them, all that it will do is benefit you in every aspect of life. There have been so many studies 
that show the natural benefits of meditation. Lowers the heart rate and blood pressure. It can actually improve cognitive processes. Meditation has so many natural benefits, and that's setting aside the supernatural good, this amazing moment for grace and growth. So there are so many good benefits to it. It's going to help you naturally in your life, and it's going to do even more good to help you supernaturally. So I recommend we pray in a special way today for all of those cloistered religious monks and nuns who spend a life in meditation that they would pray for us who don't have the, the means, the opportunity to do the same, that we would keep them in our prayers, that we would encourage vocations in those regards, and that we would always strive to bring those types of religious communities to our diocese because they always provide such a, a bounty of grace in the places in which they dwell, always. It's such a blessing. So continue to pray for these things, especially for the Carmelites, of course, who celebrated a feast day yesterday with Our Lady of Mount Carmel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.